episode of Darwin's Black Book um, at the Research Ethics Conference 2021. We are so excited to be here. The conference has been absolutely amazing so far. And a huge thank you to, to Warren and the committee for letting us be here um, to talk about the ethics of evolution research and, you know, science research. It's going to be a good general, one. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. Gonna, yeah, it's going to be a really, really interesting uh, session to talk about. And um, yeah, again, thank you so much for, for having us. Yeah, uh, so we've basically picked a couple of topics that we really, really loved about ethics because there is there is so much we could talk about, so right? Much. So it could be um, something in animals. It could be you read a lot on eugenics that you decided that was too heavy. Too to bad. Let's not talk about um, eugenics at twelve o'clock in the morning yes, on a Friday. So then you've got everything from tissues to mm. human participants. There is so much. Yeah. Um, but while I was researching, I found a whole field called, which I've forgotten the name of it already. <laughs> If you're it's wondering, called... we are going to have notes over here. There's a microphone in the <laughs> middle, a lot of new and you are over here, so it's going to be a little bit of looking between. So it's called evolutionary ethics. Probably should have remembered that. It's much easier than I thought it was going to be to say. So it's basically this entire field of research is dedicated to um, looking at the evolutionary reasons behind why we have ethics and morals. Yeah. So, kind of, I was saying to Tom on the way here that. This whole conference is happening because we, as people, have ethics in our research and in our lives, and every decision we make, our morals have a factor in that, right? Um, so, why do we have that? Why does like this? If you're looking at it from the point of view of an evolutionary biologist, exactly. there's got to have an adaptive reason. There's exactly. got to be a fitness trait. Which is why it's perfect for Darwin's Black Book, the evolutionary podcast. We should probably <laughs> introduce ourselves before we get carried away too much, uh, too much longer. My name is Tom. I'm a professional researcher. Um, and I'm Becca White. I'm a PhD researcher in genetics here at the University of Exeter, where we are sitting right now. Exactly. Darwin's Black Book has been running for about a year, almost a year. We've done uh, our first season, just come to a close, and this is our very first live show, which I'm super excited to be at, as, as I've previously said. And yeah, today is all going to be about research ethics across the whole board of evolution. And um, Becca, do you want to take it away with the evolutionary yeah, ethics? Yeah, I was just way too keen. I mean, talking about it. I mean, even our taxi driver on the way here, I was telling him about it. Whether he didn't ask, but now he knows. Now he knows a lot about it. He does. So it's uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, basically, it's looking at taking down each moral that we have or each ethical principle we as humans have, and looking at why might that have evolved? Why is it useful to us as a species? Um, so one example that kept coming up, so I guess I have to talk about, I was looking for something a bit lighter, incest. Oh good. Oh, we're so, just going straight in there then. We're going with straight it. for incest. <laughs> um, so as people, I mean, I know things differ over time and across cultures, but I would say the majority of people know that incest is not a thing one should do. Partake in. One should not partake in. Probably it's not. wrong, right? Mm. Morally, it's wrong. Mm. You don't do it. It's, I don't know, some people will... <laughs> you watch these true crime things and was like oh it's messed up it's horrible but why do we think that there's got to be a reason i understand it's inherently wrong but why is it inherently wrong indeed hopefully so, you're gonna tell me i'm gonna tell you <laughs> so um if you have inbreeding so 
What should I use an example? Dogs. 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 So you know dog species, right? I fairly few. Um, well, dog breeds. So you know, there's a lot of problems with some of them, like pedigrees. Um, King, King Charles Cavalier, Spaniel Springer. The most inbred uh, dog of them all. Exactly inbred because they're to get this like perfect look of the dog the that you want, the one that will sell for yeah. thousands of pounds. A lot of incest is, goes on between them. Yep. I mean, these dogs have like such hypertension in their brains mm. that they will die really young, and they have ang- like pan- anger attacks. Is that what they're called? They have seizures. They've got water yeah. on the brain. They've got their brain is too large for their heads, and also their eyeballs are too large for their heads as well, which mm. is which is um, disturbing to say the least. Yeah. Well, all that is because of inbreeding mm. um, and incest. It's because you're reducing their gene pool so much you don't get that natural outcrossing that you would expect in a natural population. Yeah. It's exactly the same concept in humans. If you have a offspring with someone that's very closely related to you, like a sibling or something like that, um, there is an increased chance that they're going to have some kind of genetic disease, which is, of course, bad and inclusive fitness, which is when um, you consider the fitness of the offspring as well as the individual. That's not good for that, so it's not an adaptive trait. Incest is not adaptive. That's why we have kind of moral, oh, that's wrong. It's because it's bad for us as a species it's almost an innate, and individuals. It's an innate kind of, this is bad. Even if you don't necessarily know why it's bad, Genetically, it's mm-hmm. actually awful. One of the first, actually, this reminds me of one of the first people to bring this up, and we have his physical diary to say so, Charles Darwin. Hey. He married his first cousin, Emma Wedgwood, of Wedgwood Plate fame. Um, he, yeah, first cousin, he mentioned it in his diary um, when after a child, uh, one of their children died, and a few others had learning difficulties. It was saying, I think the fact that she is my first cousin. That has there. There is an issue there. There is something going on. He didn't know what it was. Again, genetics wasn't known at that point. The the whole genome wasn't wasn't known um, in in the late nineteenth century. But he knew something was going on because Mm. they were so closely related. Interesting. He saw it with the royal family as well because, of course, they were very closely related. Uh, Queen Victoria, first cousin, um, Prince. I've entirely forgotten. Her husband. Show feelings. Oh great! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. One of the things you would absolutely know, one hundred percent of the time, is like, who was she married to? Him. Um, also, this is a great opportunity to say, if you do have any questions and/or corrections that you want to make for me specifically, uh, there's a chat box you can ask anything in at any time. Uh, we're going to leave a little bit of time at the end for any questions absolutely. at all as well. Anyway, so back to the ethics of this. A lot of our morals are innate feelings. We didn't put them there. They can be things that were taught by our parents or by our peers, people around us, or they can be something that has evolved to be in us now as individuals. And there are lots of examples of this. So I've talked about inclusive fitness. So this is when fitness doesn't just apply to you as an individual, because evolution is all about survival of the fittest and your offspring. Inclusive fitness looks at the fitness of your offspring because that affects you so much as well in terms of evolution. So that's where we're at. Another very important concept when looking at the evolution of ethics and a moral compass in humans is something called kin selection. So if you've listened to the show before, you probably, hopefully you remember what it is. So this is when um, individuals you're closely related to, so your kin, like your siblings, um, their fitness is important to you because you have very similar genes. Mm. And this all comes back down to, you know, selfish genes, survival of the fittest. Evolution is all about passing the genes down. Your kin have very similar genes to you, so it's of benefit to you to, you know, support 
genes that are similar to you, and evolutionarily wise, that will help it persist. So it's two very important concepts as to why we have a moral compass and we have ethics. Um, and talking about this, this uh, research field of um, evolutionary ethics, so I've talked about incest. There are many others as well. I made an entire list. I found every example that I could find on the internet. Um, so we've got altruism, which we're going to talk Being about later. Being nice to each other, which doesn't yeah. really exist. And not, we're going to come to that oh, later. Okay, Don't okay. get ahead of yourself. <laughs> so altruism is the idea of you do something for someone else and you mm. get nothing in return. Mm. You, you expend a cost. Yes, it's a that cost to cost. you to benefit them. Yeah. Maybe before we get there, maybe have a think about that in terms of inclusive fitness and intellection and... Why are people nice that. to each other? It's basically Why? the question Why are asking. we nice to each other? Why is it evolved? Mm -hmm. Does it... Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. And we've also got conservation ethics. So um, I'm going to talk about this a bit later as well. So we've got the need to conserve wildlife and look after animals around us. Why do we feel the responsibility to do that? Talk about that later. Think about that as well. Oh, that's going to be depressing. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not too bad, I promise. Um, the innate sense of fairness. What is fair? What is not fair? Why have we evolved to have that? Um, the capacity for kind of normative guidance, feelings of kindness or love, self-sacrifice. Um, so again, that's altruism, but like in a bigger way. Um, parental care, loyalty to your group or your tribe. Um, even monogamy. We've got a whole episode on monogamy um, because that's so important and it comes to evolution and the differences between monogamy and not having monogamy. That all comes down to morals as well, like not cheating on somebody that you're monogamous with. Why do we feel that? Not just because it's bad, the natural evolutionary reason why it, but why do you it think doesn't. it's bad? Exactly, why it doesn't happen in, in nature and also why it does happen in nature surprisingly large yeah. amounts of time. Even for episode eight, we talk about that. Indeed, yeah. um, you can hear all about it then, but in short, basically any bird that you think is, oh, as in, because there's a lot of them considered monogamous, mate for life. Turns out most of them aren't cheaters. Secret um, cheaters. <laughs> but a lot of most humans have the moral compass where they won't cheat. Um, because, but evolutionary-wise, it's because if you cheat, you know, you could pick up another disease. You lose your loyalty to that person. They might not do things for you. It all comes down to these reasons. And the other ones are. Um, oh, this one's interesting. Retribution. Revenge. Why, yeah. Why do you feel revenge. like you need revenge? There's evolutionary reasons behind that too. Is there? Um, yeah, and moral cheating, like cheating in a game. Why do you think cheating in a game is wrong? See, this, this is really interesting <laughs> because now these are, you're listing things which make sense evolutionarily why they exist and why we do them as a species, why so many animals do do it. And uh, You just don't think about it. No, you do. don't. It's just part of who you are. Why are you a bad person? Evolution, I guess. <laughs> no, we're not saying <laughs> And the final one is hypocrisy. I'm probably the biggest person. Again, I hate hypocrites. <laughs> um, it's like my biggest pet peeve. Um, but why do I hate uh, hypocrites? It's because they, from an evolutionary perspective, they could be cheating me. They could be reducing my fitness, and I won't know because they say they're going to do one thing and then actually do something else. That simple, really. And, you know, we're all here today at this conference because we all care about ethics, and these are some of the reasons why. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and if you're particularly interested in hearing about any one of those, I didn't go into more detail, pop it in the chat or on, um, on Twitter or on any other thing that I've got open. <laughs> so it's mainly the chat on Twitter and um, our forms online, and we'll talk about it either later today or another time. Exactly. Also, if you do have any general questions about science and ethics, any, any topic at all, well, even if we're not brave, talking about it. A brave thing to not, say. Not, okay, okay not, not anything um, to do with the kind of ethics of, of science. We'd be more than welcome to, to chat about it. We've both spent a while in academia to have a, have a bit of a go at that as well, so do feel free to ask any questions. Um, you're good in your bit? 
Yes, that was that was the field of evolutionary ethics. So, in which case, I wanted to chat a little bit about altruism and what being nice to other people or other individuals within your species. Um, what actually that means, because previous listeners to the podcast will know I'm quite a big fan of studying behaviour, why animals do the things they do, and the fact that we can understand so much, and we see so much of ourselves in different animals, which kind of suggests that maybe we're not that different from them at all. And in an animal behaviour lecture when I was at university, I began to understand the extent to which cost and benefit applies to just about every single behaviour an individual might take. For example, walking down the road to get a drink or something in human terms, you're expending energy to walk there, grab something and walk back. In animal terms, it might be you're going to go and feed, for example, down by the, um, a, a field, a watering hole. It's no longer just walking there. The cost that you are taking is the fact that you, you, you might die. Something might come along and eat you midway and also going back again to your home as well So there's a lot of cost and benefit and if you're that thirsty you need to go and and mm -hmm. go and get that And ultimately this starts to living in isolation as a single entity um, You have to basically your cost and your benefit and that's as far as it goes and I suppose it's kind of the ethics of where does being good come in? Where you start to think about other individuals within your species, your family. What point do you start doing good things, expending cost of yourself to help someone else survive? Which is interesting because in evolution and in natural selection, you're talking about you, that's the fittest wins. You are the one that must survive amongst all others and outcompete them so your genes and your lineage can continue. But if you're helping someone else and reducing your own fitness, well, how the heck does that make sense? Why, why would you do that? And so yeah, altruism, being good, you lose energy. So why would you be altruistic? There are four main reasons why altruism has, well, we can see that altruism comes about. First one is family, as you mentioned, kin selection. Kin selection yeah. It's your brother, it's your sister, it's your mum, it's your is father. It's altruism though. That's the thing, because you're being nice, there's a reason behind it. It's not just pure altruism. Pure altruism is, I expend cost to help you, I and I expect nothing, nothing in return. Nothing in fact, I am, I am being de depleted of energy. That's what that is. So if it's kin selection, surely it's the fact that if it's your brother or your sister, those are other chances for your lineage, because they've got the majority of the same genes as you do, your lineage to continue. If you die because your cost decreases, you sacrifice yourself in fighting off a lion so your sister can run away and grab water. I don't know. Um, your lineage still continues. Yes. So that technically it's selfish because you're protecting your lineage by sacrificing yourself. So okay, that's I guess kind of altruistic. But is that moral altruism? So I guess this is interesting because we're talking about this strictly from an evolutionary perspective. Mm. If you think about it from a human perspective, does that still count because we are much more individual like I am me, like obviously I care about my sister, but there's only so much I can do for her because I'm not her, if you know what I mean. Exactly. So I'd still be ex expending myself and not getting anything back. Yeah. Which is it? But at the so, same time, your genes are still. Yeah, but then that's evolutionary altruism. No, but is it moral altruism? Maybe. 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 But deep down, evolutionarily, you're being selfish. 
the next one, uh, the, second, <laughs> the second one, um, reasons why you're being altruistic is if it's a friend. Uh, or maybe a friend that you don't have yet, but you are nice to another individual because they might be struggling, they might be uh, hurt, and later on, you're expecting something back. You, it might be in friendship, because what happens is, this happens in vampire bats, really, really interesting. So you have huge colonies, thousands and thousands of individuals, of vampire bats, sitting in the roofs of these caves, and they need to drink blood every single night. If they don't, they're so small, they're literally vampire bats are only this big, and the amount they take is a teaspoonful. <coughs> it's a really, really small amount. So if they don't get that, they don't find a suitable host, they will die. And when a colony has come back to the roost uh, in the early morning, some individuals won't have fed at all. And they all live in specific neighbourhoods. They all live, Aww. they all get to know their neighbours. They tend to sit in the same areas with the same individuals. And it's seen that some individuals of vampire bat actually feed their neighbour if they haven't had any. Oh, wow. Now, this may, on, on the face of it, it's like, wow, they're being nice to each other. How, how is this? Further they're investigation. Not related, right? They're not related at all. And up to that point, they may have actually not had any contact with each other. Oh, Live in the stranger. same neighbourhood. It's a complete stranger. Now, this is the interesting thing. As soon as they fed that person, they'll start to sit that person. <laughs> the little people, the little vampire bat people, they tend to sit next to each other constantly. They tend to sleep next to each other. They okay. tend to roost next to each other. Now, this is the interesting bit because that other individual, when the first individual, the, f the person that has, was feeding um, individual B, if individual A hasn't had a meal, individual B will feed them later on when they have had a meal. So in that essence, it's, it's you're taking, it's something is expected back. Something is um, mm. expected because as soon as individual B doesn't feed them, individual A will just leave. They'll no longer want anything to do with that person, uh, that individual. So it's a case of, I'm being nice to you now, so if later I have a problem, you can help me out. I have, I have a point on that. Mm. I don't know how true it is, but um, I can't remember where I was told this. In humans, if you want to get someone to like you, make them do little things for you, or ask them to do little favours for you, because then they will, like in the subconscious, they'll be expecting something back, so they'll hang around you more. In the evolutionary depths of the subconscious. That's some kind of psychology theory. I don't know. I haven't tested it. I don't know how real it and is. And well, you're, you're seeing it in vampire bats quite a lot. Mm. So, so there you go. That's the other thing. Become a mate with someone else because you're expecting something back. You may not, in humans, you may not actually expect it. Like, I expect you to do these things. <coughs> but at the same time, in your subconscious, you're like, I do things for that other person so, and they do things for me. That's how that works. Yeah. Right. That was number one and two. So we've got family, friend, third one. Because it makes you look good. Makes you look good. Makes you look good. If I do, for example, there's a few people in a room, and I help Becca because she's dropped, I don't know, a teapot, smashed everywhere. Why am I carrying a teapot around? I don't know. Now, okay. you, now, I help you clear everything up. I help you put things away. Everyone else will be like, Tom's a good dude. Tom helped that. Tom helped Becca out. That's a, that's a he good... He helped that idiot around <laughs> carrying a teapot around for no reason. I, I helped you out. I look better. In uh, evolutionary sense, um, for example, lions, when they're fighting off hyenas, uh, two groups of animals which regularly come to head-to-head head, head head in fights over food, a not-so-related individual will come along and might help the fight because, this is when males, but the big maned males will be fighting off these hyenas, because it makes it look, him look good to the other females. His mm. standing will increase in the pack 
because he looks better, he has a better chance to mate in the future. He has a better chance to get higher up with the bigger males. Does that makes sense because if the female's like, oh, he's an altruistic individual, I'm going to spend time with him and mate with him because he's going to do things for me. Because, and not only that, the genes are better, and yeah, and he helps out more. And that's really interesting. So it's, yes, you're being nice, but also you're getting something back. The chance to mate more, effectively, you look better as an individual. So I would also consider that quite selfish because it comes full background to being something for you. So Is he really a good lion? Is he really a good line? Or actually, this is something we see, something we should bring up. Cheaters. The animal or the act? No, the actual act of cheating okay. and lying your way to make yourself look better because the cheating person knows, for example, someone could stand around near the fight and be like, I'm fighting. <laughs> this is this is me. Look at me. Look how much effort I'm putting into the fight while they're just standing around around the edges, not really doing much. Ah, uh, yes. Everyone else be like, good dude. He took part in that. He took part. <laughs> he stood up for the pack. No, he made himself look good. So it's like when you're at work and your boss walks past and you pretend to look busy. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, not that we have any knowledge about it whatsoever. Uh, but that's, it makes you look better. And also, it's actually super, super beneficial for your genes if you cheat. If there's one or two cheating people in the population, people that will lie and manipulate their way through it, it's actually super beneficial for them. However, if everyone cheats, the whole system collapses because no one's actually mm. doing any work. That makes sense. Exactly. So there you go. There's another aspect of altruism and the ethics behind it about when you should be good and when, when you should not be. Anyway, I digress. Uh, your family, friends, you look good and you feel good. At the end of the day, doing a good thing for another individual releases serotonin. It releases feel-good hormones like eating chocolate does. And but, yeah, and it releases those hormones for a reason. And now because, we know why. Now we know because we evolutionary is like, yes, it actually... They have evolved by helping another individual, which may actually help the group. Helping another individual uh, rewards you. Um, so that's selfish as well because you get to feel good. <laughs> so my conclusion is the four reasons for altruism, uh, family, friend, look good, feel good. At the end of the day... There are no good lines. There are no... <laughs> you're doing them all for selfish reasons. Mm. At a very, very basic level, which is really, really interesting. Does true altruism exist? Is there an opportunity where I can help someone else... Uh, individual animal can help another with absolute cost to them and they expect nothing back. Doesn't exist. I certainly don't know of an individual. If anyone does know, do mention it. <laughs> Still on the it's also really depressing as well, like no one is nice for purely selfless reasons. There's actually a really interesting book on that called um, The Language of God. Oh, now hear me out. Okay. <laughs> because this book was written by the head of the Human Genome Project. Mm. Um, so a really important person, and he, were, he was leading the, the team that were putting together the human genome. So he obviously understands evolution and genetics, but he's also a devout Christian. He talks a lot about altruism and that good feeling and that kind of thing. So mm. if you want to read more on that, I recommend uh, The Language of God. The Language of God. Okay, that's, yeah. yeah. I will have to put that on the reading list. It's very interesting. Um, not that it's a thousand books long already, but there you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, so from an ethical point of view, is there, uh, a, is there true altruism? I think that's not something we can answer in an hour in a podcast <laughs> session. That's going to require some thinking by some monks in a mountain temple somewhere. Oh, we've got a good example here. Altruistic kidney liver donation. For transplantation. Ooh, that's interesting. Right, that's a really interesting. Thank you, Ollie, uh, for that one. That's really interesting because... 
Humans are no longer bound by the laws of natural selection. We have invented our own niche, our own ecosystem in which we thrive in. We have buildings. We've invented our own environment. So we no longer need to survive against lion attacks because we have a building and doors to prevent lions from getting in. So there are no lions here. Also, there are no lions there. But my point is, <laughs> my point is, um, we no longer are bound by the laws of natural selection. So doing that, giving someone a transplant, giving someone a part of you, literally, and expending that cost to do it, you have, you have a chance to recuperate, you have a chance to be safe, you have a chance to um, be healed again from, from modern medicine. So you're saying the cost might not be... The cost is no longer as bad as it seems. It's still, it's still serious, don't get me mind. You are literally taking an organ out of you to give to someone else. But there is, there's a huge amount there which prevents you from dying. Back in the Middle of Ages, I would say that is... Perfect example, because there was a good chance you might die. Um, but now there's a lot of chance to get better from that. I'm still going to argue that, though. Yeah. Um, because going through a surgery and the stress and the risk, when you don't have to do any of that at all, mm. it's still a huge thing to do. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. That's really... Okay, so, Ollie, where you've started an argument now. But <laughs> <laughs> that's a really interesting one. Yeah, I guess. I guess. But does it make you look good at the end of the day? If it's to a stranger... That's a good point. Is that true altruism? So you'll never know who actually that person is. Yeah. Oh, that's food for thought. That's food yeah, for thought. Thank you very example. much. That's a good one. Um, cool. So there might be, as we found out, <laughs> there might be true altruism, especially in humans. Mm -hmm. um, again, yeah. outside natural selection. So. Yeah, but from an evolutionary perspective, there was never really the opportunity to cut your own kidney out and give it to your mate. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's I don't, a good I point. don't know. That's pretty really good. Other people might know you've donated. Helena has said, other people might know you've donated. You'll be better regarded by your peers. That's a good point. That's if you point three. People, you do look better. It. You do look better for doing it. And, and you also feel you feel that, good. Yeah. You feel, that's selfish, that is. <laughs> that's not selfish. I am joking. I am joking. I'm saying no. <laughs> Donations are incredibly, incredibly <laughs> valuable. They're incredibly selfless. <laughs> and as you say, yeah. But evolutionarily, they might be a little bit selfish. Uh, moving swiftly onwards before I annoy anyone. Yeah. Um... It's a good feeling evolved, because that's an interesting question. It is, yeah, as you're saying, it is. It, it encourages you to do more good things for other people, because especially as a group, doing a good thing will make the group survive more. Yeah, and that serotonin release, you evolved to get the ser serotonin for all the happiness. Yeah, um, so you, as Helena has mentioned, it is the good feeling evolved. Yes, yes it is. It is. Um, for question. a reason as well. So, as I said, there's, there's the whole cheating thing as well, but just to finish off, there's something called green beard altruism, which is quite interesting, um, which has evolved to count people cheating. Green beard is in? It's known as the green beard. I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Uh, as in literally a green beard, because in the models, uh, you had a population and most of them were doing nice things for each other, uh, and a small group of them used to cheat. They cheated their way through this algorithm. I, I believe it was the actual... The These actual humans. model, no, it was a computer model in oh, which okay. you had little blobs and the blobs went in, out into the world every day and there were dangers. And basically, uh, if, if this individual encountered a danger, it would yell that there's a, there's a warning. All um, in computer code, right? Uh, all in computer code, all as a model, all online, all on the computer. It, this little individual would encounter danger, it would yell danger to warn its peers. And then it had a 50-50 chance of being killed by that danger. If you didn't say something, you ran away every time. So what you saw is a population of honest people, they would, they would get to the danger and they would yell danger. And then 50% of the time, they would die. However, 
and a cheating one would go up to the danger, they would see it's a danger, and they wouldn't say anything and get away 100% of the time. So that was beneficial. That's why you ran away. Again, if everyone did it, people would die the dangers exactly helping each other yeah so it came to the fact that something evolved over time where you'd see basically the the model was increased to another level um some blobs were given little green beards that showed um that they were honest that showed that they were honest and the green bearded altruistic ones they would um only yell danger if there were other green bearded altruistic ones near them they would only help Someone else with a green beard. I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I know you're honest, and therefore I shall help you because you know, I know you're honest. And it shall be reciprocated. And it's a really interesting thing, so you only help other people. That, this is a really hard thing to also define in the wild. It's something that evolves through models, through computer code. But it's quite hard to pinpoint in nature because it's a really mm. messy thing to try and isolate <laughs> at the end of the day but again it's also uh, and then actually there's another level where um the cheating people also evolved green beards oh <laughs> <laughs> so there's it's an arms race between the cheater and and the altruistic so one that as well. kind of phenotypic trait just became hmm. just something that was there yeah which is really interesting yeah, yeah. Just a waste of energy really look at the green beard hypothesis and really interesting videos online about how that works as well um Otherwise, we'll, I could talk all day about that. So, <laughs> anyway. Um, move on to the next part. Let's move on to the next section. Cool. So, the complete change of, of theme. Um, modern day ethics and intervening in evolution. So, we have skills now as a society where we can manipulate evolution to benefit us. Um, some examples of this are domestication. So, we have little dogs. That used to be majestic wolves, but now it's a little funny. Chihuahua, chihuahua. things. Yep. yep. No offense to um, anyone who has a chihuahua. <laughs> no, I brave. love them, but they're not wolves. So they probably think they're wolves. But um, so it's domestication. Then you've got um, artificial selection. So if you look at farmers, they have cows who are dairy cows are very very good at producing milk. They produce way more milk than would be adaptive to the species. Mm. Um, that's just through artificial selection. You just pick a female that produces a lot of milk and a male that's from a mother that produces a lot of milk make them breed and then just keep repeating that and then you end up with a cow that produces lots of milk that's um artificial selection that's a form of evolution that we have interfered with even if we didn't really know what we were doing because this has been going on for thousands of years um and that's something we've done and the other example is of course genetic modification oh, GM. Yeah. um i'm a big fan of gm i think it's absolutely fantastic and i know that's quite controversial because there are a lot of worries and a lot of issues with it but without it we could be getting into some very difficult situations uh, such as the global food demand mm. we need genetically modified plants which, of which are safe so if you buy something that's gm free from a supermarket that's Great, but <laughs> technically also it's been, it's, been, it's been naturally selected, which is a form of genetic modification still. anyway. Yeah, so it's just hasn't, you haven't actively gone in with a scientist and changed it. You've taken you a just, shortcut. Yeah, um, yeah. So, and as you read in a really interesting quote, I can't remember who it was from, but they said um, rejecting GM food is just as bad as rejecting the concept of climate change is a very bold statement Woo! especially as so many people are against gm that deserves a episode um, in itself yes I think. Oh, that's very interesting <laughs> um but basically the whole ethical discussion behind this is the scientific response to human modification of evolutionary trajectories so a trajectory is basically the path evolution takes to get to the perfect thing that will fit into its niche very nicely very happily 
Um, and that trajectory is something that humans can now manipulate and change through the ways I've just told you about. Um, how far should we go? How fast do you think we should go? What are the options? How far can we go? <laughs> so, I mean, there's loads of different what's ways the, uh, What's the quote? It says that we went so far. Uh, we, we only asked if we can, whether or as if we should. Yeah, something like that. That yeah. was Jurassic Park, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought it sounded familiar. Um, so you've got obviously Could the resist. food one. The food one we need. We need to genetically modify our food. Um, for example, we need wheat that will increase its yield mm. to maximise it, or we're just wasting energy, wasting money, wasting resources. Um, and there's a lot of people in the world that we need to feed and a lot of you know animals that we need to feed and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So that's, that's great. But then you've also got things like, if you want to go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, designer babies. Do you know what desi designer babies are? You can, yeah, it's when you can genetically modify your child to before be- Before they're born. Before yeah. they're born to ensure they have no genetic defects. Yes, also, but then people argue, right, if you can take out genetic defects, could you not decide, I want a blonde child? And I mean, you, that. I'm sure, yeah, you probably or, could get there. Yeah, I mean, we know the genes for it. It maybe it's possible. Ooh, and then we get into a whole spiral. Yeah. yeah, that's very, very interesting question. Um, but that's us modifying the trajectory. That's us forcing evolution. We're going against evolution. Way. We're is overcoming that, it. Evolution is a uh, gradual change. So the definition of evolution, yeah, the gradual change of genes over a specific period of time. Yeah. If we change them all at once, does that count as evolution? Yeah, or if we just change the genes. Or if we just change the genes. But it's still important to consider. And at the end of the day, is it ethical? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, that's the, that's the really interesting question is, should we? Should we do that? Yeah, well, there's also um, another really important point that came up. So there's uh, a person called Paul Ehrlich from the University of Stanford. He wrote a really interesting paper on this in 2001. Um, he talked a lot about um, animal conservation. So I said I'd talk about this again. Here we are. Um, a lot of animals have gone extinct unnaturally because of human impacts. Mm. Uh, so many different human impacts, um, from land use change to overconsumption to overpopulation, so, so much. Um, and he said, do we have a moral, ethical responsibility to do everything in our power to bring back animals. Now, I'm mm. not going to go into this too much because we have done two entire episodes on de-extinction and whether we can genetically modify animals to bring them back and how we could do that. It is possible in the long term and there are ways of doing it. And we even talked about animals that we might be seeing making a return in the next decade. So Super exciting. That is happening. But is that our moral and ethical responsibility? I have opinions on this. Yeah? Yeah, I do. Well, this is interesting because it's ethics. Um, we are... We are a species that we have we have given a name to being good because for just being good the, the purposes of being good you're, you're being an ethical person um, and we've given a name to that and we don't really see other animals doing that I mean we've given examples of where they are altruistic and but we've we've given a specific name for eth ethical but what we've done because we've taken ourselves out of the natural environment created our own environment mm. and destroyed quite as much as we have of the natural world. If we've given a name to being ethical as thinking about the other person, thinking about the other, like how can we help, then yes, we have done so much damage. We have done so much bad and deforestation and culling and the list goes on and gets more depressing as you go down it, but we have done all of that. So to be ethical and to even consider ourselves as being part of the ethical, you know, ethical group of, of yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. If we even consider ourselves to be that, then 
there's no question we should be absolutely doing that was pretty much Alex's point like there's a bringing quote it back it bring back the species we've made extinct if it's gone naturally extinct a thousand years ago Maybe not. Yeah, that's right. Because that... that whole mammoth thing. That's the whole mammoth thing. It's niche, it's closed, etc. But if we've done that really recently and it's gone extinct last Tuesday... Mm. Yeah, that's exactly what um, Alex said. Um, considering that just two or three human generations are dramatically changing the biota, so the life and nature around us, um, that will cause a major portion of the environment of tens of thousands of future generations... What ethical obligations might this impose on scientists today to respond in any way we can? Yep. Because Food it's pretty much just been a few generations and this is going to impact the world uh. forever. Well, I'm going to put it out to you guys as well. Do you think we should be bringing back species? Something for you to put your opinion. It's interesting. It's yeah. really, really interesting to get people's opinions and why, why they think that as well. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Cool. So, yeah, that's what some food for thought on modern day evolution and us intervening um, and everything from <clears throat> from medicine to dog breeding to yeah, food. To food to as well. <laughs> yeah. babies. So, <laughs> yeah, there's one last bit I really wanted to talk about as well. I've got, got some time left. Yeah, again, yep, stick your questions. Stick your questions below. We'll love to answer them. Um, I, being a zoologist and coming from a zoologist background, there are some specific topics which I feel quite strongly about and researched a fair bit and it was quite hard to pinpoint something in research actually something that we are doing as human beings that are ethically dubious and should we be doing it and there's a moral kind of gray area and this extended all the way from primates and scientific research where you're saving countless numbers of lives without it i would certainly not be um but at the same time yeah, you're trapping sentient animals and keeping them in cages and injecting them with stuff. So it's easy. Really, talking about really, kind of for medicine. Yeah, for, med for medicine. Cosmetics. Cosmetics is an absolute no, and we absolutely should not be doing that. In terms of for medicine, you're keeping primates yeah. in that because their genome is so similar to ours, they have an immune system similar to ours, and we're saving countless lives, but at the same time, we're killing countless of theirs. And suffering as well as a big Oh, and so much because, they're, is, because they are fully functional animal with a, a conscious uh, oh the lights have gone off uh, <laughs> very dramatic so that was that issue i didn't really want to talk about that though because it's been done a few times before um exotic pets should we be keeping exotic pets big tigers big cats in the, uh, in the u.s keeping talking primates in the uk that's an interesting one which has never been talked about there's a huge number of privately owned pets uh, that are primates in the uk Illegal, extremely illegal. It's illegal. Well, it is and it isn't because no one's okay. really said no. So, oh, yeah, that's an ethical grey area. That's going to be interesting. Uh, taxonomic vandalism, actually, in science itself, when you start to just name animals random things, if this is a new species, it isn't. Yes, it is because I wrote a paper on it. I have an example of it, and I've named it a new thing. Until you get thousands and thousands of species being named for no apparent reason, there is a an eminent. I won't mention his name. Um, an eminent. Uh, uh, an Australian scientist who's doing this, who's naming specific animals incredibly silly things, quite rude things, insults other people after really ridiculous things. And at this point, is numbering on nearly, what, 500 a year species he's describing, which is just, it's making a mess of taxonomic trees. He's just naming them because he wants to be the guy to... Yeah, he wants the credit. Uh, yeah, that's not very that's an, it, Within research itself... We have to, instead of scientists going in, zoologists going in to try and figure out where, how these animals are related, how they interact with their environment, we have to clear up mm -hmm. the mess that's left behind. Yeah. 
And it's slowing up scientific progress. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but what I really want to talk about in the last section is something which doesn't come up enough. And if you Google it, hardly ever comes up at all, um, which is really interesting. It's um, the Myanmar amber trade. Amber is in the, the jewel, the mineral, okay. the rock. Uh, this is interesting and it requires a little bit of background. Amber's great. It looks pretty. It's a beautiful golden rock, polished. You can stick it on necklaces and things. It's great for scientists because things get trapped in it. 50% of the stuff that gets trapped in it are like flies, which are less you than a mosquito. Millimeter. Don't you? Yeah, I have a mosquito and a tiny little droplet of anger, uh, amber, which is amazing. No, it's not filled with blood. No, I'm not bringing back dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> before anyone asks. Um, it's, it's really interesting. So we've got several places around the world produce high yields of amber. Um, Dominican Republic, about 20 million year old amber. You've got um, another place in Africa which produces about 40 to 60 million year old amber. And then you've got uh, Myanmar, Burma, uh, which produces 100 million year old amber. Which is amazing because 100 million years ago, that was 40 million years before the dinosaurs went extinct. This is an incredible period of history which we don't know the minutiae of it. We know the big things because they've died and left their skeletons, but in terms of invertebrates, it's incredibly hard to get hold of. How amber forms, so you've got pine trees, and when a pine tree gets injured or the beetle had a little bit of a, a nibble or something has crashed into it, fallen over... Wait, it, wait, beetles? Beetles. As in... Yeah. Beetles. Oh, so it goes, falls into the amber? Yeah, yeah, no, this is beforehand. Okay. So they attack the tree. Okay. They actually eat the bark. They might um, eat some pine needles. And what the tree does as a, an immune response, effectively, like you would clot a cut, what that the tree does extrudes uh. um, resin, the really sticky stuff that gets all over your hands when I was climbing trees as a kid, um, extrudes a little bit of resin. If you're small and you get caught in resin, you're going to get stuck. You can't get yourself out. If you're a big animal, I just pull my arm off, hence why we don't see large dinosaurs being stuck in amber. Mm -hmm. um, snails have been caught. Uh, we actually recently, an ammonite, an actual ammonite, one of the curly little fossils, has been found in amber, which has been fantastic. And what this does, it is no oxygen in that environment. There's no bacteria to uh, destroy that specimen. What you've got is an almost perfect representation, not in three dimensions, with its interior still intact, of an animal from 100 million years ago. Wow. Which is incredible. If we want to discover what the environment was like, what plants were being eaten, what was living there, what was buzzing around and pollinating things, it's an incredible opportunity to go and ex discover those things. So. This animal gets caught in this tiny piece of resin. The resin will fall off the tree. If it falls into a forest, that will invariably disintegrate and be destroyed. For, it will turn to dust. If it falls in a boggy area, maybe a marsh, uh, next to some fresh water, then you're looking better because suddenly it's, it's, it won't dissolve because it's being kept moist. And then that will be washed out to maybe a freshwater lake or maybe the sea. And from there, it can be covered in sediment where it won't be broken down by microorganisms. And then over immense periods of time, it turns into a polymer, much like plastic. Okay. And then it turns into a rock a piece of amber. So the chances for all of that to happen is rare, to say the least. And 
from that point, uh, yeah, digging them out of the ground, you can get a full uh, 50% of them again, really, really tiny flies. But you get beetles, you get ammonites, you get a huge amount of really awesome stuff that you can CT scan, see inside, get a general, general fantastic detailed idea. The science from you, what you can get is, is, is mental. You can see my excitement about yeah, what's being say, found. Clearly you're very excited about this, but where does research ethics? Where does research ethics come into this? Um, so, I mentioned Burma. It's really, really rare to find really good stuff in Amber. Burma is one of those places which uh, are recently a, a, a lizard has been found. A head of an actual lizard a hundred million years ago. In amber? In amber was found, called Oculodentarvis. It's a fantastic hey. opportunity. And it's an entirely new group of proto-lizards, which we had no idea about <laughs> because it was found in amber. So this is a place which produces some really cool stuff. It's called somewhere called the Huquang Valley of Kachin, which is... <laughs> the translation is Valley of the Devil. Okay. Um, it's been a mining... Uh, valley for about 100 years it started with rubies and has uh, about in the 2000, late 1990s started to go into amber <laughs> now amber goes about 100 meters further down in the mines than the ruby mines this region has been fighting for quite a long time since the 1960s uh, for independence from burma it, it's a small native group of mountains uh, intense fighting the myanmar actually is the correct term I should be using, the Myanmar, uh, has basically put a military control over this entire region. Mm -hmm. And in 2010, we're seeing a huge increase from both uh, US investors and Chinese investors, but a lot of money in to get a lot of amber out. It can be used as a huge amounts for ornamentation. Also, science starts coming into this. Absolutely. In 2010, uh, just got some numbers here. Um, we're seeing... I think it was, yeah, in two, sorry, the year 2000, we're seeing about 60 species a year. Wow. Being, it's, it's quite a lot, but we're seeing flies, little tiny little things. In 2018, we're seeing 320 to 340 species being named every single year. Wow. That All is insane. All same from the same valley. As such, some, the military side of it has made a massive impact. Um, it's really taken off. Uh, 10 tons of amber a year are taken wow. out of this mine. Um, tens of thousands of people are employed, and I'm saying that in massive quotes, are employed in these mines. Okay. Paid on virtually nothing, under military control. You have to be young and slim to get into the mines, Oof. about 150 meters down. If something goes wrong, you're on your own. Oh my word. The okay. money that comes from the amber trade goes straight to the military control of that area, most of which are militia, most of which fund other terrorist organizations around the world, especially military coups, which go on to buy weapons and arms and slaves, because these mines are slave-run. Oh, I see. And this is where we get to the meat of the ethicsy bit. What happens when the science is so good, but where it comes from is so awful? Because it is awful. These are, this is blood amber. This is what it is. Um, extracted by elephants, dragged through the jungles. Um, papers can't even keep up with the amount of stuff this, this wow. place is producing. But yeah, secret reports have come in. If you Google it, you're not going to find much on it at all. You'll find no pictures. You'll find hardly any reports. Um, Steve, where did you find this from? 
it's a, this was a, a culmination of um, reports done by a reporter for The Atlantic okay. magazine. Um, again, this is not in any scientific... It's, again, some small journals, some small conferences have said, we're not going to deal in blood amber. But that's as far as they go. Okay. That's it. We're not going to deal in blood amber. We know, we know why they're not doing it, but no further research about going. How do we stop blood amber from being a thing? How do we prevent tens of thousands of teenagers being exploited in mines hundreds and fifty meters below the ground? You still get the good science somehow. <sighs> because that's the question, as well. A lot of there's again oculant and tarvis. This tiny proto lizard is is really big in the news because this came from um, the scientists have acknowledged it came from these mines. It acknowledged that it came from um, the mines. And they're saying, should we ignore the science? What can you do in that example? And they're saying, we're not going to ignore the science. We're going to continue to do this. But situations like this, you go to a conference, a man approaches you. This has happened on several occasions to two people. You go to a hotel room. He has all the amber laid out. You buy it via cash. What? And that's how that works. Wow. That's how you get it. Because otherwise it goes into private collection and you'll never see it again. So what do you do? Do you try and understand a world in which we have literally no idea about and the science is so rich? Or do you fund that? Mm. And that is a massive question which is hanging over paleontology, which is, I could talk for quite a long time as you can tell about it. Again, the, the specimens out there can't keep up, uh, the, the paper, sorry, can't keep up with the number of specimens. 1,500 species so far have been described from these mines. So that's the ethics of it. Where does your samples come from? Where do your um, specimens come from? Be aware. Who has dug it out of the ground? Who are you paying exactly? Where is your money going? Because the vote of your money yeah. means so much. And I think that's where the scientists, we're not going to ignore the science, we're going to pay for this. Yeah. I think it, it speaks volumes about the scientists themselves and also what they're doing with the funding. So just be very, very aware, I think, as a warning, this is a thing that exists in the world and this isn't the only example. So be aware um, that these things do exist. Yeah, I've gone on a little bit of a rant. That's a very nice series to end on. Yeah, I think it is on a, yeah, certainly extremely ethical things to think about. So, yeah. yes. But that's it for time now. It is. I've right <laughs> run end. it right to the end. <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the, on the Ethics Conference 2021. It's been, it's been really, really awesome. Yes, I also want to say a special thank you to Warren, Maria and Ellis for making this conference happen because I mean, I've been behind the scenes a little bit and you guys are just unstoppable. You're amazing. <laughs> and today it's happening and it's, it's wonderful. Um, yeah, so you can find us on Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and many other podcast players. Exactly, we've got quite a few places you can find us, and we've already done our first season. So, yeah, yes. plenty to get its teeth stuck into. Uh, massive thank you for the British Ecological Society who uh, supported the development and uh, production of this podcast. And you can join the society at BritishEcologicalSociety.org, and you can find us, Darwin's Black Book, at Twitter at Darwin Black Book no S we ran out of characters Darwin Black Book or Instagram at Darwin's Black Book and also Facebook by the same name yes we also have an expo booth with all those links on right here at Research Ethics Conference um, if you look over on the the expo thing right here <laughs> here we have one there so you, and I'm going to be hopping on and off that as well if you want to have a chat about anything um, uh, fantastic. Also, yeah, you can find more about the podcast at bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. We have our own website info about me. Uh, find out more about me, speaking way too fast, at tomland.co.uk. Um, we're getting really positive uh, notes in the comments as well. Thank you very much, Jen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.